The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. We have some students from Augsburg College here tonight. Welcome. Glad you came. So we're, tonight we're going to talk about uh, the teachings of Ajahn Chah. And for those who'd like to follow along, we've been looking at the book, Food for the Heart. It's a collection of teachings from this Thai meditation master of the last century. Ajahn Chah died in 1992. It was the teacher of many of the better-known Western Dharma teachers in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which Common Ground comes out of that particular school of Buddhism. And I'd like to read part of chapter one, which is just two paragraphs. And it's, uh, you know, the people that put the book together, they chose the, this particular passage from Ajahn Chah's teachings on purpose. First two chapters are really summarizing the whole path that the Buddha talked about. And most of you know, it's a path of using the mind to understand the mind. Probably the Buddha would be willing to agree or say something like, as a human being, we only have one problem, which is there is a mind, but we're not familiar with it. We're so literally consumed by this and that, getting things, getting rid of things, becoming somebody, trying to become somebody other than what we've become that we don't really have much interest in the mind itself. All life long, our experience is very much about the nature of the mind, but it's like a fish never realizing that it's in water. It's so obvious, it never occurs to a fish to kind of go, what is this stuff? (laughs) And it's like that for us. We live literally in mind, in the mind. But we're convinced, you know, it's this very complicated world out there that we're living in. And there may or may not be a world out there that we're living in. But the point really is that whatever it is, we're experiencing it here in the mind. Whatever life we're having, whatever experience we're having right now is an experience of the mind. The mind is knowing this experience, right? And we just assume that the mind is some kind of perfect, you know, mirror of the world. And so, but we know very well, and psychologists will tell you, that the mind creates this world. You know, how our conditioning, it's like a filter for us. What we've been taught, habits, it makes this world the way it is for us. So here's what Ajahn Chah says about this mind. In fact, that's the title of chapter one, about this mind. And as I read it, directly reflect on your mind. So the whole point of these teachings is to apply them directly in our experience. So here we have a wise person talking about the mind. So let's check it out. Let's see if his pointing out of or his understanding of his mind somehow illuminates something for us. So Ajahn Chah says, about this mind, in truth, 
There's nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it is already peaceful. If the mind is not peaceful these days, it's because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. I'll stop there. I'm going to read a little more in a minute, but that's sort of interesting. So Ajahn Chah is saying that the untrained mind is stupid. The Buddha once said, there's no enemy worse than an untrained mind, your untrained mind, and there's no better friend than your trained mind. So an untrained mind, in a Buddhist sense, is a mind that is confused by sense experiences. So different things happen. Somebody insults us, for example, you know, and we get really angry. There's all kinds of funny stories about that, like, you know, a parrot in the other room saying, you idiot, you idiot. But we don't know it's a parrot. We think it's somebody talking about us, and we can get furious, you know, and then we realize, oh, it's just a parrot. Or another story I think that comes from all the way back from the time of the Buddha, somebody's rowing across the Ganges River, let's say, at night, and uh, rams into another boat. And he starts cursing and swearing and stands up, lights his lantern, you know, going to find out who this fool is. And he sees the boat he ran into is empty. Well, what happens to our anger when we realize there's nobody to blame? And it's like that with the different moods, the different sense impressions that arise. They tend to elicit a response, a reaction. The mind, the heart, the body gets tight. But that's what the Buddha would call an untrained mind. And all the experiences, the things that delight the mind, the things that upset the mind, is there another way to relate to the experiences that come and go, the things that delight and make the mind happy, the things that come along and make the mind unhappy? Do we have to be confused or do we need to take those sense impressions personally. Maybe you liked the way the debate went last night, or maybe you didn't like it, or maybe, like some people, you know, one minute you're happy, the next minute you're not happy, or maybe you're just disgusted by the whole thing. But it, you see how we get pushed around. It's like our heart, our mind is constantly being pushed around by different sense impression, impressions. One minute we're happy, the next minute we're not happy, something else happens, then we're happy again. And it's like we're literally, the mind, the heart is literally beaten up by the ongoing nature of sense impressions, constantly arising. We're constantly seeing things, hearing things, thinking things, feeling things in the body. And each of those things, each of those experiences that we're in contact with we react to. It's like we can't help it. You know how it is sometimes we like to sit on the bench 
at the Mall of America or on the Nicollet Mall or, or next to one of the lakes, and we like to watch people. But it's exhausting, isn't it? Everybody who walks by, you have to have an opinion about. It's like not possible for somebody to walk by without having to have an opinion about them. It's the same thing with a catalog. Have you ever noticed, if we're actually mindful when you're looking at a catalog or a magazine, it's like the mind has to have a reaction. It either likes what it's seeing or it doesn't like what it's seeing. It either thinks it's exciting or interesting and I'll get back and read that someday or oh, boring, boring, boring. But it's having an, a, react, a reaction and all of that is stressful. And that's what Ajahn Chah is talking about in terms of the untrained mind. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, sorrow. So the full range of reactions, not just the negative, painful reactions, sorrow, but also happiness and gladness and excitement. These are also the result of an untrained mind and are stressful. But the mind's true nature is none of these things, none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. This way of teaching is somewhat controversial in the Buddhist tradition. In the Thai forest tradition, this tradition that Ajahn Chah comes out of, there's a very simple way, this point of view, this way of understanding the mind is described. And uh, Ajahn Sumedho tells of a time, this is a Western Buddhist monk who studied with Ajahn Chah. While he was studying with Ajahn Chah, he met another one of the great Thai masters from the 1900s. And he was an older monk. And Ajahn Sumedho's Thai was not that good at the time. It was before he was perfectly fluent. And so the, this older monk made his teachings very simple. He said something like, just two things, heart and the activity of the heart. That's all you need to know. Know the heart and know the activity of the heart. And don't be confused by the two. Don't confuse one for the other. So this is a really simple but powerful teaching that we can just begin to reflect on all day long and in our sits, our meditation periods too. So the activity of the mind is relatively easy for us to understand because it's basically everything we think there is. The activity of this moment is the seeing being known, the hearing being known, the sensations of body, the tactile experience being known, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts. <coughs> so basically the five physical senses and thinking, this is what we call activity of mind. All of these activities constantly move. Seeing isn't a set thing. Hearing isn't a set thing. It's, a, it's like a river. It's a stream of activity being known. And then, so what's the mind? So that's the activity of mind. And what is Achan Cha? What do these Thai forest masters mean by the mind? Well, the mind is the one who knows the activity of the mind. So... Now, right now, you're hearing my voice, or you're seeing me, you're feeling your sensations of your body. So, what's the one that knows that? 
there's knowing happening, right? If you're aware of seeing or hearing or feeling your body sensations, then there is the one who knows. So there's one who knows. That's the space of the mind or the mind itself. And if you think you know the mind, then that's not it, because that's something being known. That's an activity being known. So whatever idea, for example, you have about the mind that's knowing, the one who knows, whatever idea you have about it, that's an idea being known. So it's not it. And this is the reason for practice. There's the one who knows, and there's what's being known. So another more traditional way of talking about this, instead of mind and activity of the mind, we talk a lot in the Buddhist tradition about Buddha Dhamma. This is a the path of Buddha Dhamma, the way of Buddha Dhamma. The mind that knows, the heart that knows, knowing the way it is. Right? So Buddha means the one who knows, the awakened state, unrestricted consciousness or awareness not bound by anything, knowing the way that it is. Knowing these six things, the five physical senses and the activity of mind. And this is our experience, but this isn't what we're aware of. This isn't what we understand. Because of habit, we're only interested in the activity of mind. And in a sense, we think that's all there is. What I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling and tasting. That's all there is. So where our, the tendency is to get attached to the activity of mind. Because it's all we have, in a sense. It's our ground. These things, and they're ephemeral. Like whatever sound you're hearing now, it's gone. Whatever sight, all of the activities of mind, the thoughts and all the five, the experiences of the five senses, they're ephemeral, aren't they? You know, like... Whatever experience you were having at 7 o'clock tonight, you know, in terms of thought and sensation and sight and sound, it's totally gone. And even this experience that's being known, the activity of this moment, all of that is already changing, becoming something else. So because of our limited understanding, the untrained mind, all we understand, all we know is the activity and we cling to it, we grasp it, wanting it to last. But it won't. We can never really gather, hold the activity of mind. It's always becoming something else. Our life is always tumbling into the whatever it is that's next for us. Never stopping, ever. Has your life ever stopped, ever? No. It's constantly changing. Whatever we have right now is always disappearing in order for whatever it's going to be in the next moment to become. This is what it, this is sort of the definition of a process existence. We're not a thing like we conventionally imagine that we are, you know, a static. It's an unfolding process. Life is an unfolding process. If it weren't, we'd never get from now to next, right? So before we even become now, it's already becoming what's next. It's our, always this ephemeral thing. And this is what mindfulness reveals, the ephemeral nature of Dhamma. So there's two things, activity of mind, mind, or Buddha, Dharma, Dhamma, the one who knows the way it is. 
And another way to think about this is the unconditioned and the conditioned. And the practice is really about understanding both, emptiness and form. That's a phrase that was used in later schools of Buddhism a lot, you know, emptiness and form. And we need to somehow realize the integration of both of these. It's not about one being good and one being bad. Activity of mind is bad. Mind is good. Because that's, that's usually how people's first impression is. Boy, I just want to get to that empty stuff because I'm so frustrated by the activity of my life, the activity of my experience. I just want out. And we want this sort of place. But there's no out. The sort of mind and activity of mind, they sort of play together. There's no... And all we can do is understand it. That's what we want to do. Understanding it means becoming a mature, happy, alive, wise, and loving human being. That's what it means. So he goes on. I'll read a little bit more of this quote. So I read the first paragraph. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. That's the first paragraph. Then he goes on. He says, but really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. So now he's talking about the one who knows, the Buddha, nature, emptiness, unconditioned. This is part of how it is. But it can't be grasped like we see something and it's known in a way. It can be realized, but not through not through uh, sort of grasping it. He says, just like a leaf which remains still so long as the wind doesn't blow, if a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering of the mind is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. The mind will be unmoved. As it isn't sometimes. You know, sometimes our mind is e immediately moved by sense impressions, you know, things that are disturbing. But after a while, some things don't disturb us anymore. Right? Maybe when you were a kid, you were disturbed by being alone at night in the dark. And so there you were, and your mind was moved, you know, it moved when it was done. But now that we're old and wiser, maybe we're not so frightened at night when it's dark. And the mind can be in that experience, seeing the darkness, but the heart, in a sense, the space of the mind doesn't flutter, doesn't get agitated by the darkness. Think about how many things used to agitate the mind that don't agitate the mind. And then just Imagine, use your imagination, like taking that out so that more and more experiences, really beautiful experiences, really terrible experiences, don't cause the heart or mind to flutter. The space of the mind remains undisturbed no matter what happens in our life. We just do what's next. We give ourselves fully to the moment. It's not about being passive. We give ourselves to the moment, but the heart remains unmoved by what's arising, whatever it is, whatever we're seeing or thinking or hearing, whatever emotion comes and goes. This is the 
unshakable release or peace of the heart that the Buddha is pointing to. The more we understand the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, the more we understand better the nature of experiences that are coming and going. How to be in the world of experiences coming and going without the mind being thrown around by it, pushed around by it. This is why words like equanimity are so relevant, you know, as we begin to understand this path. And then he just ends with two more sentences. He says, our practice is to simply, I'm sorry, our practice is simply to see the original mind, this, the mind that knows, the heart that knows. We must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So it seems to me, at least, that this is a wonderful way to begin a book about practice. You know, sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, we refer to these statements that have a, a real punch as a, a somebody's lion's roar. You know, like Ajahn Chah, maybe the night he gave this talk, it was his lion's roar in the sense of the fruit of all his own reflection, paying attention to his mind, being interested in his mind, comes out with this teaching. And it has a certain, hopefully a power, enough to inspire us to reflect on our own mind. Because it's not enough to just hear that. In fact, all the teachings are only of use if we actually directly apply them, like we use these teachings to look at our experience moment by moment by moment. Without that, it's not anything but you know philosophy that we can argue about. You have your view, I have my view. We debate with each other who has the most clever arguments to support their point of view. And this is what happens a lot in philosophy and well, politics, of course. And basically, throughout life where we're not really knowing things directly down to the bone. We just have ideas about things. You know, I have all kinds of ideas about wind power and solar power and I have all kinds of ideas about buying places in the country and I have all kinds of opinions about po political issues and I have ideas and you know, opinions about so many things that I don't really know about. And, you know, we can fill up many lifetimes getting more ideas, changing our ideas. So we don't want Buddhism, these teachings, to just be more of this. Uh, it's like uh, these habits that a lot of us have of acquiring things, you know. I know people in this community who are really into acquiring things, you know, whether it's electronic gadgets, having the newest electronic gadget, I have a friend who collects agates, and he has boxes and boxes of agates that he's collected over his lifetime. And you know, some of you have your comic books from your young years, and hoping that someday they'll be worth something. And you know, we do the same thing with ideas. So the idea in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha is often talked about, you know, as a teacher, but uh, as a doctor, like a spiritual doctor. And his teachings are medicine. And it doesn't do any good to put the medicine on an altar or, you know, to bow down to the medicine. You've got to actually take the medicine. You know, you've got to take the teachings 
and you have to apply them. You have to work with them, chew on them, and use them to illuminate your life, your experience. We're trying to get interested in the way it actually is. And any moment will do, because what we're interested in waking up to is this. Not so much the activity that's right here, right now. You might think that, because like in the meditation tonight, I was suggesting, instructing you to be mindful of the in-breath, to actually feel the breath coming in and to feel the breath going out. But see, to understand the nature of the mind, we have to understand what's being known. Like to know the one who knows, to discover or realize the one who knows, we have to be very clear about what the one who knows is knowing. So the realization or the insight, we call it, you know, we practice having a balanced mind in order to have insight to see what we're not yet seeing about experience. We don't, you know, one of the problems is we think we already are seeing everything there is to see. So we arrogantly believe there's nothing to wake up to. So why try? So we need a little humility that it's like uh, we're driving blind, but we don't realize it. You know, living our life blindly, but not realizing that we're blind. Part of the blindness is thinking that we're not blind, right? We're so blind that we don't realize we're blind. So then we need to be, uh, we need to sort of wake up. So the first thing we do is we pay very close attention to the experience of being blind or to the experience we're actually having. Because that's actually what reveals or allows for this realization of the way that it is. Thinking that we don't have to pay attention, close attention, is based on thinking we already know. You know how it is. We do this with our friends, our lovers. We think we already know them. We don't actually show up in our relationships very much. It's really unusual for two people when they're together to actually really be there fully. You know, really awake, sensitive, not leading with our preconceived ideas or expectations or our projections of who the person is. And when we do, it's scary. It's awkward because we feel naked not having our projections and opinions about each other there in a sense to protect us. So that's why it's nice to begin where it's safe, like with your eyes closed in meditation. And we practice being naked, basically, like being present without our projections, without our ideas, but just the way that it is, just the breath as the breath, the sensations as sensations. So it's like taking baby steps. And Ajahn Chah in Chapter 2, he talks about the path that the Buddha laid out. The first talk the Buddha gave, which is called Setting the Wheel of Dhamma in Motion. Dhamma means two things. It means the way that it is. So Buddha knows Dhamma. The one who knows, knows the way that it is, the activity of mind. But Dhamma also refers, it's also used to mean the teachings of the Buddha. So setting the wheel of these teachings in motion, these teachings that rock our world and inspire us to pay attention, to cultivate a balanced, a relaxed and clear mind that can see things that we're not seeing, that can open 
So we're not just living out of habits, living blindly. And so Ajahn Chah covers this in the second uh, chapter, and he talks about it in a very simple way, which I'll share before opening it up for discussion. So some of you already know that this path that Buddha talks about can be divided into three areas. There's the whole area of ethical conduct, the area of mental cultivation or mental development, and the area of wisdom. And the idea is to bring mindfulness, this balance of clarity and acceptance, relaxation, to bring it to these three areas of life. So the Buddha is just dividing life into three areas. There's this whole area, you could call it our external circumstances. It's all about relationships, like how we're relating to each other, how we're relating to objects, how we're relating to whatever's in front of us, community. So this is ethical conduct, or in the world of integrity. Are we relating to whatever with integrity? Or are we relating to what's happening out of our habit? Maybe our habit is to be greedy. Maybe our habit is to be aggressive and angry. Maybe our habit is to be deluded and disconnected and sort of lost in our thoughts. How do we relate? Is there integrity there? Are we harming ourselves and others in how we relate? Now, to get interested in that, we need mindfulness. We need to have that very balanced heart and mind that's clear, it's alert, it's interested. It doesn't think it already knows. That's what interest is. It's like when you're walking in the woods at night and you hear something moving, you know, you listen. We listen. We get really still and we have a lot of humility. I don't know what the hell that is, you know. And we're like willing to be a beginner, willing to be like somebody who needs to learn. I need to know, is that safe, whatever that is, or is it dangerous? You know, is it a saber-toothed tiger or is it my dog? You know, we're listening. And it's the same thing. That's what interest does. It, it comes from a sense of humility, like I don't really know what's going on. I may think I know what's going on, but I don't really even know what that is. What is that feeling that I already know what's going on, that sort of inertia, arrogant inertia that, oh, I already got it, you know, where we, don't, we just don't have the energy to be interested. We just don't think it's relevant, that somehow life isn't relevant. Our life as it actually is isn't relevant. Now, if we live that way, we get really good at it. So by the time you're in your 30s or 40s or, God forbid now, your 50s, you know, then we're really good at not paying attention to our life because we've been practicing for decades thinking, I already got this, I already know what's going on. And it becomes a pervasive habit of the mind to be disconnected, to not really be showing up, not really relying on our capacity to be sensitive, alert. Interesting. It's one of the hardest things in the world to have that beginner's mind with anything. Like tonight when you brush your teeth. You are going to brush your teeth, right? <laughs> you know, see how, notice how difficult it is to be interested in it all the way through. Now, you might, because I said this, you might be able to be interested for the first few seconds, you know, but watch. 
It'd be very quick. Your mind will start thinking about something. It's not easy to be interested or just try to be interested in the act of driving home all the way till you get home. It's really hard to be fully, vividly, wholeheartedly present in the moment, in the activity because of this very pervasive sense. I already got this. I know this. I don't have to be here. I can be, you know, basically lost in thought because it's only my life happening. I mean, this is the ultimate deal with the devil that we've decided, you know, we've made this deal that I don't really need to be here in my life. And then no wonder our life feels so vacant. And, like, we need spicy food and dirty movies and violent movies and all kinds of things to feel alive because we've so cut ourselves off from the moment, thinking it's not relevant. It's only relevant if we go bungee jumping or commit adultery or you know, do something outrageous to sort of give us some energy. Take drugs, gossip, you know, all the things we do that sort of gives our life a little juice. Well, we can cultivate that juice in a very wholesome way by having cultivating this interest, this interest and this relaxation. Because if we're tight... We can't see clearly. We need to be really interested, wholehearted and bright, but we have to be settled at the same time. And that's the art. That's really pointing to the second part of the practice. So three parts, bringing this balance of mind to our relationships, all the ways we're relating to things, people. We bring this mindfulness to the mind itself. To like, what is the mind doing? How is it? getting lost in thought? How is it reacting and struggling? How to develop this balance so that the the tendency to be balanced becomes the habit, not the tendency to be lost in thought, to be distracted, to be reactive. So it becomes the default habit of the mind to be in that relaxed and alert state, to be vividly present. Now it takes a lot of intention to be balanced. Joseph Goldstein, my, one of my teachers, talks about it as an inverted bowl, you know, upside down bowl. And if you put a little marble right at the top of the bowl, you come back to that place of balance, you'd immediately fall off. And you could be very persistent, as we should be, because in the beginning that's what it takes. You keep coming back to the breath, or you keep coming back to the present moment. But the mind wanders. It goes somewhere else, and you come back, and it wanders. But eventually, that bowl turns right side up. So now, there's still things that are going to happen, disturbing thoughts, loud sounds. And the mind might get pushed off center. But now, the tendency is for the mind to come right back. Its tendency, its habit, is to come back to balance. If you ask people who've been meditating for a couple decades what the fruit of their practice, I mean, they might talk about certain sits where they had deep insights or really deep peace of mind, peace of heart. But the most relevant thing you'd hear experienced meditators talk about is the default state of the mind has changed over the years from being sort of a ongoing anxiety or an ongoing dullness or an ongoing 
uneasiness to uh, a more default balance and release and stillness and clarity and energy. It's just like there. And it slowly builds, gradually for most people, over many years of practice. And then, of course, when we have that, then it makes the ethical life so much easier because when we are relating to each other, <clears throat> there's this background of stillness, of clear, relaxed presence. So if we start to act in a way that's harmful, it just stands out. When your heart has this background of stillness or peace, then when you do something naughty, when you're acting like a jerk, the contrast between the inner peace and the intention of hatred or the intention of lust or greed or whatever negative intention might be present, that contrast really stands out. You just It's just so much easier to see it. In the same way, like if you have really nice white clothes on, you know, you're going to notice if you're getting stains. But if you have, you know, brown or gray clothes, black clothes, you know, you're not going to notice. And so it's like that when the mind is really quiet. You, that doesn't mean your voice is quiet. It doesn't mean you can't run or dance. It just means no matter the activity, the outer activity, there's that background balance and stillness and presence then you'll really notice when your actions are off. So we're bringing mindfulness to daily life in terms of our relationships. We're doing this specific training of the mind. We're training the mind to be balanced. This is the sitting practice. We're making the effort to be mindful and to have the continuity of mindful mindfulness. So we're using relatively easy experiences like the breath moving in the body or just the experience of sitting or the experience of hearing. We're using ordinary experiences in a safe setting to develop the continuity of mindfulness because that, that's what rewires the habits from being distracted and agitated to being calm, clear, and still. It's practice. And that's the second part of the path, training the mind. So here we're, in a sense, we're developing wholesome patterns of relating to each other. Here, we're developing wholesome ways of the mind taking care of itself. It's like we're taking care of the ecology of the inner mind, the inner space of the mind. And with ethical conduct, we're taking care of the ecology of all of our relationships, keeping everything harmonious there. And meditation is that in, within the heart and mind itself, we're keeping it harmonious and beautiful. And then the final place for practice is with our view. In Buddhism, we call it wisdom. So here we're purifying our view. The first area, we're, pure, we're using mindfulness to purify our relationships in the direction of non-harming. Then we're using mindfulness to purify the, the qualities of our mind from unwholesome qualities to beautiful qualities of mind, dominating stillness, calm, clarity, you know, qualities like that, joy, ease. Wouldn't you like a mind with those qualities dominating? I would, right? And then the last is we're purifying our view from wrong view to right view. The wrong view just means self-centered view. 
taking things personally, always experiencing our experiences from a self-centered point of view. It's like we have this very particular gravitational pull. It's always about me. How can you guys keep forgetting that? It's always about me, you know? And then no wonder we have such a difficult world because everybody's saying the same thing. No, no, it's about me, <laughs> you know? About my needs, about what I want, about my dreams. And we keep bumping up against each other. And the saints, the lovely people, are those people for one reason or another who have been able to become somewhat free of that self-centered view. And they move in the direction of right view, what in Buddhism we call right view, which is the absence of self-centered views operating in the mind. So you can call that whatever you want, but I think it's best to, to, to think of it in the negative, like it's not having a self-centered view. Now you could say, well, non-self view. But then, then it's something the self wants to get. You know, yeah, I want that non-self view. That would be the best ornament. Have you guys got that non-self view yet? I got it. And we just, the, the ego uses it. So it's like, we're, what we're interested in is the abandoning of self-view, self-centered view. And so we're using mindfulness. This, of course, is more subtle. We're using mindfulness to be able to sniff out when we can, when, when the mind is balanced, when the mindfulness is strong. What, if any, is the view in the mind? What, if any, aspect of the view of the mind is self-centered? And it has a particular smell or taste. It's tight. Self-centered views are always tight. They're always heavy. I don't care if it's really subtle. There's always a weight. If there's no weight, then there's no self-centered view. So by definition, when we say a self-centered view, it means it has weight to it. It, it has tightness to it. Now, that doesn't mean you're aware of it. You know, you might be thinking, you know, no, 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 I don't have any self-centered view. But that's because we haven't developed enough stillness, enough balance of mind to notice how tight the heart is. One of the things that meditation, regular meditation practice will reveal is just how tight we are. <laughs> because we're so distracted going through our lives that we don't realize how tight we are almost all the time. One of the things you notice when you're around somebody whose practice is really deep, when you get the opportunity to be around people who are real saints, is how light they are. They're just, it's just like, you just want to be around those people. You get a tangential high just being around people because their sense of ease and happiness and authenticity is just so, it's like uh, palatable almost, if you're paying attention. And, and if you are paying attention, the one thought that arises is, I want some of that. That's what I'm interested in. I want to develop my heart like that person developed their heart. And that's exactly, you know, the, the attitude we should have. Everybody who's done this practice from the Buddha on down, and even, of course, is in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha wasn't the first Buddha. This is... He's just one of many people who've had this deep insight and articulated it enough so that people could take the instructions and work with them. 
that they had difficult lives like we have. You know, they had busy, they had to feed their bodies and take care of their families and negotiate, you know, civilization or the lack of civilization, just like we do. And they, you know, the, our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, the men and women before us, they did the practice the best they could, shared what they've learned as best they could, and then we're the recipients of that. So we want to be inspired to do the best we can, to bring mindfulness to these three areas, as Ajahn Chah suggests. So we have about 10 minutes left. If there are any questions about the talk tonight, or even experiences from your own practice you'd like to share with the group, anything come to mind? Yeah, Ellen. What you can know is, like you suggested, Ellen, you can know that there was tightness there. And, uh, and so to get interested in like all the different ways your heart was defending itself, defending yourself against you know, your right to do what you wanted to do, to let your dog run without a leash, and you, all those ideas you have about why that's okay to do, you know, and your attachment to those ideas being right. You know, and being tight that spitting is bad, you know, and that because in a more open state the mind doesn't need ground. It doesn't need to be right. It just sees everything. It sees its own business, like whatever qualities are present in your own mind, honestly, without judgment, it just sees what's there. And if there are any unwholesome qualities in the mind, it just sees them and knows these are unwholesome qualities. If there are any wholesome qualities in the mind, open, wise awareness just knows these are wholesome qualities in the mind. They don't lead to suffering. Same thing as we observe other people. We just observe, instead of saying, oh, that's a person who's angry at me. No, we just see this as a movement of wholesome and unwholesome qualities flowing on endlessly. right? And we just realize 
we're just learning the same lesson we learn when we look at our own qualities. Any of those unwholesome qualities that get expressed cause suffering. Any of the wholesome qualities that get expressed alleviate suffering. That's just the nature of things. If I meet his or hers unwholesome qualities with my own unwholesome qualities, then there's been this transference. Their suffering now becomes my suffering, and it's my responsibility because I took the bait. You know, I let their unwholesome qualities trigger my own unwholesome qualities. I've gotten identified with them, taking them personally, and my mind's proliferating. And here, the suffering, the result of that is right here, right now. So even if you don't say anything, it's still alive in you. And then if you say something back, you know, which you did, then that furthers your own and his own suffering, that back and forth. But that's okay, because reflecting on it, you can learn from it. You can see how your actions, your views, your way of relating, the way you work with your mind, and your views, all three parts of the path, you, you can learn from what you did it's, and imagine a different way. By feeling the pain of that interaction as it's still reverberating in you now, like in any tightness, no matter how justified you feel in your actions, the point is, if your heart hurts, it hurts. And if we're really skillful, the heart doesn't hurt. We're left with what the Buddha calls the bliss of blamelessness, like a sense that whatever needed to be done was done. You know, And if we hurt, it means it's like useful information. It's just saying, honey, you could have done better. So it's not to judge yourself for hurting, like there's some leftover business. But it's like, think of it as a teacher. OK, I hurt because there's something to learn here. You know, it wasn't clean. The bigger piece for me was I thought I was reacting nice. You know, it was like Yeah. That's the big shadow. In Buddhism, generally, the big shadow in Buddhism is we think that if we act calm, that we are calm. <laughs> but there are a lot of crazed people who can act calm. So it's the only way we know whether we're skillful is, our, and we need to even be mindful to do this, is the heart hurting. Because that's how we know whether our actions, our way of being is skillful. We're not leaving a trace. That's, you know, in the Zen tradition, they talk a lot about that. It's a really nice image, sort of living our life traceless. So there's no residual stress in our mind and body from our actions. And that's a nice image for us as we move through life, not to leave a wake of unnecessary suffering anywhere, in our own hearts or in other people's hearts. Now, we're not completely responsible for other people's suffering, our actions causing other people's suffering. But we can have the intention not to cause other people's suffering. It still may, our actions, even though we're not intending it, may cause other people's suffering. But we can at least not leave a trace in our own heart. But obviously, that's not easy for us. Thanks, Ellen, for sharing. Time for maybe one or two more people. Yeah, Kevin. Like it's like a, 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 a
teacher said lust cracks the brain we lust for things you know just in a simple way with cars or and especially downtown has that energy more strongly than other places you know the affluence and the kind of the presentation of what you're wearing what you're driving you know your cell phone all these things they're status symbols and uh, we're in a sense probably hardwired wired to notice status symbols, just kind of rank ourselves, you know, am I better or worse than the same as? And so that's just part, I mean, we're doing it all right now to some degree, even at a place like Common Ground, we're kind of sizing each other up in different ways. And we can't really help it, but we can have a lot of wisdom about it. We can see it and we can learn not to take it personally. So that's what I would do is I would notice it with a sense of lightness, maybe a sense of humor, sense of compassion, just understanding that wiring, that tendency of the human mind to this, in the direction of social ranking. And uh, just like when the mind takes it personally, that social ranking, it's really, it's really oppressive, you know, to sort of believe what the wiring is telling us, you know, that it matters that I'm here versus there. You know, all the different, I'm better than, I'm worse than. That That's oppressive. But can we live in a world with social ranking without being oppressed by it, whether we're at the top or bottom of the heap? That's the interesting question, isn't it? Can we be at the top of the heap without being oppressed by that, like wanting to keep it that way or wanting to, people to know that we're at the top of the heap or feeling guilty about being at the top of the heap? And the same with being at the bottom of the heap. Can we be at peace with that without blaming or what and even if we're trying to climb up the ladder can we be okay with that like can that not be a cause for stress that's the interesting question I think yeah there are some nice cars out there <laughs> I think we have to, if it's quick yeah we have a minute left yeah That might be a good sign, though. Yeah, but what I have realized in this year is that, like, my my view of life has changed, and I've definitely become happier. You know, and I go through my day, I I see, I look out, like I notice the trees when I'm going to class, or you know, like I enjoy being around people, I enjoy just eating food in the cafeteria. But then I look around and I see so many so many people around me that are unhappy that 
seem so lost and just like completely, they just they hate their lives, they really do. And I want to help, like I want to bring happiness to these people, but I just have no idea how to. Well, keep doing what you're doing. That sounds great. Because even before you say anything, your presence, and especially your presence around other people's suffering, you're maintaining your balance and not being afraid or disgusted by their suffering, but being, you know, being able to be close without getting sucked into it, but without being disgusted by it. So maintaining the balance when you're with people who are very frustrated with their lives don't see any purpose or whatever their kind of particular weight is, is really powerful. And then if you're in that balanced place, then there may be a time where it's just right to say just the right thing. But of course, coming at it directly and trying to preach often doesn't work, or most often doesn't work. And there's a real imbalance that happens early in our practice where we start feeling the authentic fruits from the regular practice and we want, and it, it's sort of like we want to convert other people. And that's it's just a strong tendency. Everybody goes through it because it really works. You know, it's not that it's coming from a bad place, but we don't understand sort of what to do with the fruits of practice. And what we should do is we should be inspired how this works. It may be gradual. And it's not so much about what you've gotten from the practice. It's what you've let go of. So this teacher I mentioned earlier, Joseph Goldstein, he says that. He says, it's not about what you find, it's about what you don't find. So it's not what, you, what you've gotten from your practice, it's what's been dropped over the months of practice. You're lighter, you're freer. There's less neurotic stuff there. And that's what you're experiencing, the absence of what used to be there, in terms of your habits, that aren't there as much or as strongly. And this is how we take care of the world. We, we deepen the sense of peace and wisdom and love within the heart. And then we just get engaged. You know, and we keep practicing all along. But just being who you are, engaging the world that comes your way, is your way of giving back. And in that, you might just say things at just the right time that are really helpful for people. But it's like planting seeds. Don't be expecting big turnarounds. In a way, people have to do their own work. So we can model the work. We can model doing our work. And we can invite people along. Like, if they get interested, yeah, come sit with me, you know, or come to Common Ground with me, or whatever. Thanks so much for sharing. What's your name? Andy. Andy. Andy? Andy. 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 And let's just take a few seconds. We'll let go of the words. Maybe take a breath together. And thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.